Today, as we jump into the story with Jesus, um, uh, I thought of a Dr. Seuss book. And uh, have have any of you heard of the Butter Battle book by Dr. Seuss? Anyone? Yeah, one person, I think. Uh, Yeah, it's not one of his popular, two, two people. It's actually, it's not one of his most popular books, um, and you'll see why in a second. Um, There are are two groups of people. Um, One group is called the Yooks, and the other are the Zooks. So Y-O-O-K and Z-O-O-K, so Yooks and Zooks. And the Yooks, I don't know how to say the word, Yooks, they butter their bread on the top of their bread, which makes sense, right? But the problem with Zooks, according to Yooks, is that every Zook eats their bread with the butter side down, which is just a no-no, right? You just don't do that. And so there was a rift between Zooks and Yooks, and a big wall was built between them, a, a massive wall. And then tension throughout the whole Dr. Seuss book, it's escalating, right? Uh, uh, Bigger guns are built to defend their own side of the wall, right? So bigger guns until the final scene of the book. Um, In the final scene, both Yooks and Zooks have developed bombs that they call the big boy boomeroos, big boy boomeroos. And they're actually just, it's a little pink like rock looking thing that if you drop it on the other side of the wall it just destroys everyone on that side of the wall and on the last page there's a zook and a yuk who have are standing there holding their little bombs about to drop it on the other side of the wall and you don't see the text here but i'll just read you uh, what dr seuss writes on the final page of the book after so much escalation By the way, there's a little boy who's watching his grandfather. One of those guys is a grandfather, so that's weird. Anyway, but here we go. Grandpa leapt up that wall with a lopulous leap, and he cleared his hoarse throat with a bopulous beep. He screamed, here's the end of that terrible town full of zooks who eat with their butter side down. At that very instant, we heard a clup-clup of feet on the wall, and old Van Itch clupped up. The boys in his back room had made him one too. In his fist was another big boy boomeroo. I'll blow you, he yelled into pork and wee beans. I'll butter side up you to small smithereens. <laughs> Just love Dr. Seuss. Okay. Grandpa, I shouted, be careful. Oh, gee, who's going to drop it? Will you or will he? Be patient, said Grandpa. We'll see. We'll see. That's how the book ends. <laughs> it's a cliffhanger, right? <laughs> and uh, probably wonder why it's not the most popular Dr. Seuss book, right? And, and good night, Tommy. <laughs> Have a nice sleep. <laughs> oh, who's going to drop it? But Dr. Seuss wrote the book in 1984 when nuclear war with Russia uh, had been a real threat for years. And when Dr. Seuss was asked why he didn't end the book on a more positive tone, he said this, quote, I would have gotten into dishonesty. That's the situation as it is. It's interesting. That's the situation as it is. How many of us right now would say, yeah, that's the situation as it is in our world, in our life, as we see things going on in Russia and Ukraine, as we watch the Oscars where a horrible joke leads to an escalation and violence, 
So we can, we can see these things on our screens, but if we're honest, we turn and we see it in our life, right? Escalation and relationships that are ending at our jobs, in our families, in our marriages. Escalating conflict. That's what we're living through, right? Escalating conflict. As Dr. Seuss says, that's the situation as it is. And today, Jesus is going to have to coach his followers, his disciples, his apprentices, not to escalate the conflict. Not to escalate the conflict. So the title I've given to this sermon is Don't Nuke Your Neighbor. It's alliteration thing? Don't, yeah, don't nuke your neighbor. On the road to Good Friday, listen to the prayer Jesus prays as he's crucified 2,000 years ago. On the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. As the empire drives nails into his own body, he prays for them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And Jesus, we come to you today and say, we don't know what we're doing. And those who are hurting us, they have no idea what they're doing either. And we're lost. And we need you. And we need you to speak today. And we need you to come in power and to heal us. Lord, I pray for healing today. I pray for courage today to be able to pray for our enemies the way you prayed for those who crucified you. Jesus, would you move in this room in a beautiful, powerful way today? We love you. We trust you. We thank you that you're here. Amen. All right, if you'd grab your Bible, we're in a tiny little story. Just, I, just to be honest with you, we're in Luke 9, Luke 9, verses 51 to 56. I uh, kind of forgot about this story. <laughs> if I'm honest, I've read through it before, but um, I didn't think about it much, and it's, it's quite powerful. So we'll, we'll read Luke 9, uh, verses 51 to 56. Here we go. As the time approached for him, that's Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And he and his disciples went to another village. This is the word of the Lord. Mm -hmm. All right. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? All right, let's dive into the story. Verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Okay, look at that little phrase, uh, time to be taken up to heaven. This is a shorthand way of describing the three times Jesus, uh, in, in, in his final days on earth, is taken up. You can think of the three. Once, he is taken up in glory on the cross uh, to give his life for the world. He is taken up out of the tomb on Easter morning from death to life. And then he is taken up into the heavens 
where he sits at the right hand of the Father at his ascension. Three times, Jesus is taken up. So taken up is just a shorthand way of describing everything that is about to happen in the coming days. Cross, resurrection, and ascension. Notice that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Actually, in the ESV, and I think more accurate with the Greek, it's he set his face to go towards Jerusalem. So he set his face. Uh, It's a way of just saying he had single purpose, one thing in mind. He was a man on a mission, and he was going to accomplish this mission. And by the way, that really impacts the story, right? Because um, the disciples are going to need to see the way he brings justice. Okay, verse 52. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to set things ready for him, or to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Okay, so here's the problem. Jesus is not welcomed into a Samaritan village. Okay, so so why not? Well, who are the Samaritans? If you're new to the Bible or new to Jesus, Samaritans were um, the the descendants um, of the 10 northern tribes of Israel. So the people of Israel came from 12 tribes because Jacob had 12 sons, and out of those 12 sons came 12 tribes of Israel. But um, hundreds of years before Jesus, the tribes had, had split. Israel were 10 tribes in the north, and Judah was two tribes in the south. Israel and Judah. So when you're reading your Bible, you notice there's a moment in the story where they become the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, right? Israel and Judah. And those 10 tribes in the north um, uh, had, had been conquered by, by pagan nations, and they had really intermarried with like Assyria and Babylon and, and all kinds of nations. And, um, and as they intermarried, they basically became half-breeds or whatever, um, because, because they, had, they were no longer purely Jewish people, right? They were half-breeds. They, Jews didn't like them because, uh, because of that split hundreds of years ago. And Samaritans worshipped at their own mountain, Mount Gerizim, instead of Mount Zion uh, in Jerusalem. And so they worshipped on different mountains. And over the years, they became enemies, absolute enemies of each other. What's weird is they were former siblings slash cousins, ancient siblings' cousins, and now they're absolute enemies. Now, if you were a Jew living in Galilee and you were traveling south to Jerusalem and Judea, um, you would try to avoid Samaritans. I'm going to put a a map up here, and uh, you'll see the map. Now, in the south, the city of Jerusalem, I don't think is on there, but you see in the lower right-hand Jericho, from Jericho, it would be like you would climb basically up a very steep road towards Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's in the south in Judea. But go all the way to the top of the screen there, look at the top, and you see Galilee. Well, that's where Jesus is from. That's where he grew up. That's where he did lots of his ministry. If you were wanting to travel from Galilee straight south to Judea, uh, what do you need to walk through? <laughs> Samaria, right? You see it? Big red letters or orange letters. Samaria, right? There it is. That's enemy territory. So what you would do as a good Jew uh, to avoid your enemies, uh, you don't want to deal with Samaritans, what would you do? You would go Galilee and you would move to the right of the screen there and you would go down like through by the Jordan River and then you'd come up down at the bottom through Jericho to Jerusalem. Avoid Samaritans at all costs. Okay, so we don't want to be near them. And now that was very normal, but what does Jesus do? He seems to just 
walk through enemy territory. So imagine Jesus is walking with a bunch of, uh, with, his, with his big group of people, right? They were walking together, um, his followers, his disciples, it would have included men and women, but all traveling together. And, uh, and they need lodging. They need to stay somewhere. Um, they need to eat, right? And so uh, it was normal for a group to run ahead like scouts to prepare, to prepare a place for them to eat and to stay. But hospitality is not extended to this group, to Jesus and his friends. The uh, uh, no vacancy sign is flipped on the local motel, right? Uh, We don't want you to eat here or to sleep here, right? And so, verse 54, when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? Jesus do you want us to nuke them? Remember, tensions are high between Jews and Samaritans. I want to just paint a real quick picture. This is a bit of a rabbit trail, but just 20 years after this story, just 20 years, historians say there was another story of a Jewish Galilean, like Jesus, who traveled through Samaria, like Jesus is doing right here. He's killed by Samaritans. Like, they kill him. Roman soldiers... uh, they actually, under Roman Emperor Claudius, they actually turn a blind eye. They don't do anything about it. They're supposed to keep the peace, but they're like, whatever. You know, Samaritans killed a Jewish guy. Who cares? That's not our problem. And then uh, Jewish fighters uh, go to that village in Samaria and slaughter a whole bunch of Samaritans. So you just imagine, like, tensions are so high. Any little thing can trigger violence. And so that's the, that's the tension you should be experiencing right now. And this explains why James and John say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Let's blow some zooks out of the water with a big boy, Boomeroo. It's interesting that Jesus nicknames James and John sons of thunder, right? Sons of thunder in Mark 3. He gives them a nickname. The two of you are sons of thunder, <laughs> He could just see something in them, maybe slightly explosive, or I don't know. I don't know what the story is there. But James and John, like any good Jews, though, just so you know, put yourself in James and John's position. Like any good Jews growing up, they would remember the story of Elijah. Elijah. Let me just explain a quick story that you need to know to understand this story. In, in the northern ten tribes of Israel, a prophet named Elijah had had a lot of confrontations with a king named Ahab. He was just not a great king. Well, Ahab has a son named named King Ahaziah. Ahaziah. And Ahaziah ruled the northern kingdom of Israel uh, for a couple years. He was their ninth king. And the northern kingdom of Israel is what would become Samaria. So these are the same people, right? And Elijah, the prophet of God, had conflict with, the, with King Ahaziah. See, uh, King Ahaziah had sent groups of soldiers to go arrest Elijah the prophet. But what is it? Some of you may know the story. What is it? Elijah the prophet sits on a hill and sees groups of soldiers coming towards him. And what does he do? He calls down fire. They're destroyed. And King Ahaziah is like, you destroyed my soldiers. And he sends another group. And Elijah's like, fire. And they're destroyed. 
And it's only the third group, I think it's the third group, that, that Elijah's like, hmm, I'm not so sure. And, and, and Ahaziah's like, they're in fear because this prophet can literally call down fire from heaven. So James and John, now fast forward hundreds of years, you're with Jesus. James and John are like, we know our Bible. And here's the other thing we know. We were just on the Mount of Transfiguration. And who's Jesus hanging out with? Elijah. Elijah. Yes. So do you remember, Spencer just preached this sermon on the transfiguration, like, like Jesus is on a mountain with Moses and Elijah. So James and John are there and they're like, well, here's the deal. Like if you're friends with Elijah, <laughs> we could get some stuff done today in enemy territory. Like Jesus, do you have that kind of power? Um, well, let's do this. Verse 55, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. Underline that. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. End of story. (laughs) Now just focus on those words there. Jesus rebuked them. He turned. He looked at them. You know, it's those moments when you, James and John, I'm sure, felt like, oh, I I, I think I said the wrong thing at this point, the way Jesus is looking at me, right? And he rebukes them. See, the rebuke is the response Jesus gives any of his followers who are willing to hit back, who are starting to escalate the situation. We who follow Jesus need to let that sink in. And by the way, uh, some of you probably the question is coming up, well, If God let Elijah do it in the Old Testament, why is Jesus not doing it in the New? That's a good question. And uh, Pastor Corey and I are going to have a podcast on it this week. (laughs) So I'm going to delay that for another time. Uh, On our After Sunday podcast, we're going to talk about this. Like, what what is the deal? Like, why does it feel like this can happen? But Jesus then rebukes James and John for wanting to... To carry this out. I know for some of you who are in the room, you've been part of maybe what today people are calling deconstruction, right? You're wondering about God in the Old Testament and the violence that you see there. And yet Jesus seems so different. And in the New Testament, we read that he's the image of the invisible God. So if we want to know what God's like, we should look at Jesus. And how do these things go together? It's a great journey to go on. And um, anyway, Probably like a 10-week series is really what we need for that one. But it's something we should question. And you and I, we are following Jesus. I am a disciple of Jesus, not of Elijah. I'm a disciple of Jesus. And he looks at me, and he's showing me how to live. And we have to take that seriously. And so I feel like Jesus huddles his friends up here, his disciples. He says, all right, guys, you ready for the plan? Here's the plan. We're going to keep walking. You know, here's the plan. We're going to go to another village. Let's keep walking. And you can imagine the disciples going, where's the justice in that? Now, see, the disciples don't know it yet, but Jesus would accomplish justice in Jerusalem. He would lay his life down for the sins of the world. He would offer forgiveness for the sins of the world, for you and for me, his enemies. 
Jesus at the cross would provide a way out of the cycle of recycled revenge. And he would pray, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. I want to spend some time talking about escalating conflict. First of all, you need to know this. I just want to say this really quickly. I don't believe that Jesus is ever encouraging uh, or condoning abuse, right? Uh, notice Jesus keeps walking. He walks away from this village, right? Uh, they're, they're, they don't welcome him. He keeps going. He doesn't stay there to try to become best friends with people in the village, right? He keeps walking. And I think good boundaries are important especially for some in the room today who I know who have walked through abuse, neglect, bullying. There are times for good boundaries. We need to keep walking. As we read all of the New Testament, I believe Jesus gives us a pattern um, for, uh, for showing how to deal with complex situations, but I think Jesus would want to rescue us from places of abuse, neglect, um, and bullying. And so uh, forgiveness it can happen from afar, but reconciliation is different. Reconciliation may not always be possible, right, with the person who abused you. But I just want to make it clear that when we read the fullness of the scriptures, I don't believe that Jesus is condoning abuse. So I just want to say that here today. But what I want us to see here is um, uh, the Old Testament has a law called the lex talionis. Look at your neighbor and say, lex talionis. It's the law, this is Latin, Latin class here today, Latin for the law of retaliation or the law of retribution, okay? Lex talionis. And it comes from Leviticus 24. Leviticus 24, this is the Torah, this is the law, um, reads like this. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Okay, this is very stark, but if I, here's the law, if I take out your eye, you can only take out my eye. As I was saying that in the first service, I just, the image is just horrible. So just of me taking out your eye. I mean, that's awful. But anyway, so I take out your eye. But here's the deal. If I take out your eye, you can't kill my family. Does that make sense? No escalation. It's, it's equal justice, right? It's simple justice. The human heart always wants to escalate the conflict right? Can I just say, there's like a whole sermon we could do on this. In the Old Testament, one of the effects of sin is just revenge that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Family feuds, right, that start with something small or they forget why it even started, and it becomes this thing, right? Huge thing where people don't, and in the, in the law, or sorry, in Genesis, we see this crazy escalation of revenge from Cain, some of you know the story of Cain, all the way to Lamech, Right? And to, to the point where Lamech, this guy named Lamech, tells this poem. He says, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech will be avenged 70 times seven. Um, or seven times 70, or whatever it is. And uh, Jesus picks up on that later on. Um, but, but just the stories of what life was like, you see it in Genesis, is revenge. Escalation of conflict. So when, when this law in the Torah comes, can you see it's, a, it's an upgrade? 
Sometimes we don't think of the Old Testament law as like a good gift or an upgrade, but like, think of it. It's a, this is good, right? Like if, if I take out your eye, you don't kill my family and then I bomb your town and then it just goes crazy, right? This is just simple eye for eye, eye for eye. And in, in this story, James and John are not calling for an eye for an eye, an eye for an eye. Do you see that? The disciples don't want eye for eye. They don't want to follow the Torah. They want to call down fire from heaven because of lack of hospitality. You don't open up your little hotel or your restaurant, fire from heaven, right? So the point of lex talionis in the law was to limit revenge, right? It's to make sure the punishment fits the crime. And you can imagine Moses in the desert in Sinai, which is when the law was given, he needed that, right? There's a whole, there's thousands of people in the desert and there's no police force. And it's like, how do we live here? And God's like, just eye for eye, you know, just keep it right there. Eye for eye. It's an upgrade on the human condition. But Jesus knew that while the eye for eye is good, the Torah is good, right? Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus knew that, yeah, well, that's, that's, that's good. Uh, it will not change the world. It will not change the world. It won't heal the world. Only the love, forgiveness, mercy, and grace of Jesus heals the world. It's the only thing that can bring ultimate healing. Eye for eye doesn't do that. It's a way to do justice in the desert, sure, but it is not a way to live. And Jesus shows us how to live. Do we trust him? Remember a number of weeks ago in Luke 6, he had just taught his disciples this. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Were they listening? You you see, the disciples need to know that rejection is only going to get worse. The disciples have no idea of a couple things. First of all, that Jesus is about to be rejected, not just by Samaritans, but by the religious leaders of their own people. The chief priests and the teachers of the law will reject Jesus. And not only will the chief priests and teachers of the law reject Jesus, his own disciples will reject him. They'll turn away at his time of need. Judas will betray him. Peter will deny him. The other disciples will run away, everyone except John, who seems to just be a teenager at the time of the cross. Jesus will be rejected. And so I feel like Jesus is just saying to his disciples, you know, you're going to have to get used to rejection here. It's going to get worse. You don't like the feeling of not being welcome to dinner? It's going to get worse. And he wants his followers to see that the escalating of conflict is not how we resolve conflicts in the kingdom of God. To escalate conflict is to participate in a never-ending cycle of recycled revenge. As Martin Luther King Jr. says, hate multiplies hate in a descending spiral of violence. Or in the words of one of my favorite songs, no, I don't want a battle from beginning to end. I don't want a cycle of recycled revenge. I don't want to follow death and all of his friends. So I want to ask you, can you think of a time recently where you 
have escalated the conflict. We feel snubbed by someone, and we've returned the favor. We felt the silent treatment from someone, and now we're returning that favor. We felt insulted by someone. We felt someone spoke about us behind our own back, and we're returning those favors. Does a situation come to mind? And, and these moments start so small. So by the way, if something small comes to mind, it's important to, 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 to just acknowledge it. Because the seed of these things starts small, right, in the back of our mind. Like the disciples, have we escalated the situation? We think of the end of the marriage that we had. And did we escalate the conflict? The end of the job or the employment? Did we escalate anything? The end of a partnership or the end of a friendship. Things escalated and maybe today we're looking back and we're looking at our own role and we're wondering, Jesus, did I, did I follow you faithfully there? Did I take the Jesus way? I want you to know I don't have really easy answers for this because each person in the room has a completely different story. None of us are able to fully get the story that each of us are walking through. But here's what I trust. I trust that we're following Jesus and that Jesus is here right now. He's with us. He said, surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. So he's here. And he wants to meet you right in this moment. He's got the answers. And that's why we pray, right? That's why we listen to the Lord. So each of us look at our lives and we ask the question, did we escalate the situation? Did we make matters worse? Did we escalate the pain? Did we take justice into our own hands and, and make it far messier than it needed to be? I, I want you, I've, I've shared these quotes with you before, but I just want you to hear these. These always strike me as just so powerful. Listen to some leaders in the early church and how Christians lived. Because you wonder, you're like, okay, that's cool, Jesus, but did your followers live this way for the next 100 or 200 years? They did. Listen to this. Tertullian, writing at 160 to 220 AD. It's absolutely forbidden to repay evil with evil. The Christian does not hurt even his enemy. Or Athanasius of Alexandria, writing in the 4th century, Christians, instead of arming themselves with swords, extend their hands in prayer. Or check this out. This is Aristides writing to Emperor Hadrian in 125 AD. This is crazy. So early on. It is Christians, O emperor, who have sought and found the truth, for they acknowledge God. They show love to their neighbors. They do not do to another what they would not wish to have done to themselves. They speak gently to those who oppress them, and in this way they make them their friends. It has become their passion to do good to their enemies. This, O emperor, is the rule of life of the Christians, and this is their manner of life. Could we say the same today? Let's get practical. What did Jesus call us to do? Very simple. He called us to pray for our enemy. 
Matthew 5, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. The person that angers you, the person that causes me deep bitterness, I feel like I often talk about bitterness, right? It's a real deal in my heart. What am I called to? Pray. I'm called to pray for them for my enemy. I've shared this quote with you before as well, but I I really appreciate it. John Stott, our enemy is seeking our harm. We must seek his good. If they call down disaster and catastrophe upon our heads, we must retaliate by calling down heaven's blessing upon them. You notice, what's he pulling from in the story? Calling down fire, right? So here's the deal. When we pray for our enemy, our enemies, two things happen. There's two benefits. Number one, benefit number one, what if, let me throw the what if out there for you. What if God healed your enemy? And now we have one less enemy, right? We scratch them off our enemy list. Like, oh, okay. They repented. They saw the error of their ways, right? God hears our prayer, then our enemies see the reality of their sin, and they apologize to us, and they try to make things right. Um, And most of us in the room are like, Matthew, you don't know my enemy. My enemy would never do that. Never. Never happened. Right. Okay. But what would happen if we prayed, and God actually heard our prayers and answered? Then God would orchestrate this beautiful healing in this relationship. The, the, The interesting thing would be if we want that. I think for a lot of us, we're like, I'm not even sure I want that, right? I don't think I want that. I don't want to be near that person. But here's the deal. This means we have one less enemy, and that's a good thing, right? But here's the the second thing, benefit number two. We pray for our enemy, but let's say they don't repent, which in all likelihood is probably quite realistic, right? They don't repent, but what happens to our heart? Man, we're set free. We're set free. When we pray for our enemy, they no longer have power and control or authority over our hearts, minds, and lives. We are freed from that bitterness. We need freedom from bitterness. Bitterness eats us alive. Another quote that I appreciate, John Ortberg, he says this, bitterness is like drinking rat poison waiting for the rat to die. Right? That's bitterness. It's a life in chains. When I pray for my enemy, God heals my heart with his peace. It's it's miraculous. And, and when we live this way, Jesus promised this. He said, you will be children of your Father in heaven. What? Children of your Father in heaven? What does that mean? Well, he is a father who has compassion and mercy and grace for his enemies. He's a father who has compassion on sinners. He's the one, Jesus, fully God, who prays forgiveness for his enemies on the cross. So when we live out a great mercy in a time of great anger, then we start to look like our dad, right? We start to look like our father. We are just a chip off the old block, as it were. I love how Tim Mackey says it. He says, humans are never more like God than in these moments. Now we start looking like dad. So again... I want to just ask, where have we escalated conflict recently? And I'd I'd just love to invite you to pray. Would you 
join me in prayer here. Um, I know some of you are not all uh, following Jesus, but what we're going to do is we're going to pray. We're going to actually have an encounter with the living God here because we trust he's with us here. So let's close our eyes. Let's take a moment. And I just would want to ask you as we pray, uh, who is the person or the conflict that comes to your mind? Would you bring it to mind? And you don't have to do what I'm about to say because it's your life. (laughs) But should you desire to do it, should you have the courage to do it, would you pray a blessing over their life? And if you need words, you can start with Jesus' words. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Lord God, in so many ways, we've nursed the revenge. We've thought through ways in which we can respond And uh, those seem way more attractive than praying for our enemy. But Lord, we trust that you knew exactly what you were doing and that today you know exactly what you're doing. And so Lord, we release control of uh, justice, knowing that you accomplished justice at the cross. And we pray that you today would bless our enemies. God, that they would repent, that they would see the light. But Lord, also that you would heal us from bitterness, heal us from the hatred that makes us a shell of the people we want to be. Would you heal us, Father? Would you come and pour your mercy out in the room? We remember your cross here this morning. We remember, Jesus, that you died for us, that you paid the ultimate price, shedding your blood for us, that we would be forgiven and freed. And and God, I recognize that some of us, even myself, I might be the enemy in someone else's life. And God, I pray that you would show us how to repent and how to walk in humility and how to say sorry and how to turn God, we want to be faithful. We want to be healed. We want to be made new. Come, Holy Spirit, move in the room.